Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. The Barbican Art Gallery is staging the first Lee Krasner retrospective in Europe for over 50 years, and this reclaims and celebrates Krasner as the formidable artist and major pioneer of abstract expressionism that she was, rather than being all too often marginalised as a long-suffering spouse of Jackson Pollock. As Krasner herself once exclaimed, I painted before Pollock, during Pollock and after Pollock, but it was Pollock and her association to him that framed the reception of Krasner's work during her lifetime, and it's continued to overshadow her extraordinary exploratory art. Now I'm here with Eleanor Nairn, who's the curator of Lee Krasner, Living Colour Exhibition here at the Barbican, and the leading art historian Gail Levin, who developed a lasting friendship with Krasner before writing her biography, which is published by Thames and Hudson. Eleanor, this is the first Krasner exhibition in Europe for over 50 years. Why particularly did you want to stage this show? What was your motivation? Well, the first thing I was really conscious of was the sheer power of being able to be with Krasner's work in the flesh. My research interests mean that I get to spend quite a lot of time in North America and particularly in museum collections. And Krasner's very well represented in museum collections in MoMA in New York, in the Whitney, in Philadelphia Museum, in LACMA, in Los Angeles. You know, there's wonderful examples of her work. And we only have one work in a public collection here in the UK, which is a work in Tate's collection. And when I was spending time with these primarily paintings and occasionally collage works, I was every time sort of knocked sideways. <laughs> and each time it happened to me, I thought, why don't I know more? Why don't I know the full picture of this story? And once I'd read Gail's biography, I think I felt really convinced that this was not just a remarkable woman artist, but it was also a remarkable story, a story of a life that needed to be told. And that the two things would come together in a really timely way to present a story that people would want to hear. Well, talking of that story, Gail, could you just talk a little about Lee's origins growing up in Brooklyn? So Lee was born in Brownsville in Brooklyn to Jewish immigrant parents who already had a bunch of children. She had sisters and an older brother. Of course, the older siblings spoke Russian. They came from the Russian Empire, the Ukraine. And the older brother and the father immigrated right before her mother and the girls. And Lee was born exactly nine months and two weeks after her mother arrived. So we know it was a happy reunion. And then there was only one more child, a younger sister, Ruth, who came after Lee. The family moved from Brownsville to East New York. And it sounds like it's Brooklyn and it's urban, but it was actually very rural. And Lee's interaction with nature, which is so central to her art, comes right out of growing up. Do you think her experience as an immigrant and the fact that she came from these very you know, hard-working parents who made their way to America and you know, really grafted away and set up a life for themselves also had an effect in shaping her determination? I'm sure it did. She was the only one of her siblings who made it out of Brooklyn to have any kind of a life other than that of a struggling poor immigrant, and she really made it. Her sister remembered that she liked to do fashion illustrations. She would copy them out of the newspaper. So she was drawing from a very early age. How she knew that she wanted to be a fine artist, she said she had no idea how she knew, she just knew. 
And she got this place at this school, which offered a course for girls. And so she was then going into Manhattan. She decides she's going to go to the only high school. It's not even in Brooklyn where a woman can become an artist. And she applies to Washington Irving High School, that high school in Manhattan. And the subway has just been put into her neighborhood so she can actually travel there on public transit. But she doesn't get in the first year. So she goes to another high school, Girls High. She has to major in law. She doesn't do very well. She's not very interested in that. And she applies again. In other words, she gets knocked down. She gets back up. She tries again. And she got into Washington Irving. And from there, she put together a portfolio to get into Cooper Hewitt. So she got a place then at the National Academy of Design. And there, her report said, this student is always a bother, insists on having her own way despite school rules. Lee was always perceived as being messy. But you know that it was very gendered. So the women and men were treated very differently. Big discrepancy. Eleanor, right from the start of the exhibition, you, you seem to be very keen on showing this determination of Lee. I mean, that great room of self-portraits, those early self-portraits. It was a deliberate plan, I guess, to, to really show the character of the woman right from the word go, the way she stares doggedly out at you from the, from the works that she made. Definitely. And I think Krasn is somebody who really invites a biographical reading of her work. There are some artists where that definitely wouldn't be the case. She felt like there was a very clear line between the spirit with which she lived her life and the spirit with which she made her work. So it felt like a conflation that was appropriate for her. And I think we feel that same tenacity. We feel that sheer force of character when we're standing with the work despite the work varying enormously from a little image painting from 1946 through to a large-scale collage canvas painting made in 1955 through to a large-scale hard-edged abstract painting made in 1971. In all of these aesthetically quite different works, we feel that there's the same spirit coursing through. And the exhibition really tries to shine a light on that because, again, I think it's an aspect of her work that is so relatable and that people have been enjoying so much about the show. Before we talk about her extraordinary variety of style in more depth, because it's such a characteristic of her work, what also comes through early on in the exhibition is her amazing skill as a Mm. draftswoman. I mean, these anatomical drawings, and again, you devote a room to them as she gradually moves into to cubism um, at, at Job Goodman's drawing school. And I think that was a real revelation for me with these absolutely exquisite academic Michelangelo-esque life studies that then move into cubism. She is technically incredibly masterful to use quite a problematic term. (laughs) (laughs) But she she does have incredible skill and that's partly because of this artistic education that Gail was speaking about. We could probably say that of all the artists of that generation, of what we think of as the first generation of abstract expressionists working in and around New York, she probably had one of the best artistic educations of any of them. You know, we can think that from the point at which she's at Cooper Union through to the point at which she's in Hans Hoffman's school, she's really studying art for the best part of 15 years, you know. Partly because of the conditions of the Depression, she has this very extended um, educational period. 
as Gail also mentioned, things like the Museum of Modern Art, you know, she, she treated that as part of her extracurricular courses. So she says that she and the students would go there every Saturday. This is not so much visiting an exhibition once with a friend as a pastime. This is every Saturday. This is every week. This is studying what they called their gods. You know, Matisse and Picasso were her gods. In a way, when she goes to study with Hans Hoffmann, it's because she's really seeking out that modernist teaching. And Picasso's his great god, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and she's, she's, she's craving an education in modernism, which is certainly not what the prevailing education in New York at that time is. So Hans Hoffmann's schools gave her the sort of portal into analytical cubism and therefore into a form of abstraction because before then she was making you know, specifically figurative work. Absolutely. And then, of course, you launch into this extraordinary exploration and invention and I'd just like to talk a little, perhaps to Gail, first of all, about this... I mean, her trademark is her lack of trademark style, basically, isn't it? That you, Once you know they're by Lee, you go, oh, yes, I can see, and you can see the continuities. But can you just talk a little about the extraordinary variety of, of languages that she used? Well, this is true. The work is constantly inventive, and uh, she has antenna out in many different directions. For the abstract expressions generation, it's very unusual to have more than one mode. But if we think about contemporary artists, that's more common today. You think about somebody like Gerhard Richter that goes between abstraction and representation. So Lee was ahead of her time, as it were. But I love how she speaks about her relationship to the idea of a fixed image as well, because I think when we speak about Krasner in relation to tenacity and in relation to courage, it's so important to remember that she was very much sailing against the wind at this point. Mm. And she was very explicit about it. She said, the fixed image terrifies me because they were trying to depict an internal and psychological state. So if your image is fixed, then you are fixed. Mm. So she said, didn't she, I no sooner settle into something than a break occurs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yes, she was vivacious and vital, but how brave. She had the confidence to How brave it. not to have a signature style, which would have probably made her a lot more commercial, mm, even though yes. I know abstract art wasn't selling very well. But, you know, that's a, a trope that you can then slip into and people know that's you and it's recognisable. She really fought against that. I'm thinking of the tight sort of hieroglyphic style that she yes. had that then went into these exuberant paintings. And then, as you say, the collage is then going back to collage again late, late in her life with those Hoffman drawings, cutting those up. Eleanor, do you think Lee's extraordinary stylistic invention and exploration, although it was admirable artistically, actually has added to her marginalisation over the years? I think for a long time it has. Certainly it was always treated as a criticism of her, as somebody who never quite found herself. And I think it's very interesting that for me that is quite a gendered criticism. So it's interesting that, for instance, with Pollock, we sometimes think of him as someone who had a signature technique, the drip paintings, but he really only makes the drip paintings for about three years. And of course, in the period prior to that, he's making quite surrealist inspired work, very heavily influenced by the Mexican muralists who are, of course, spending time in New York. And afterwards, he's making the black and white stain paintings. And he has a long period at the end of his life where he's making very little at all. Similarly, Mark Rothko has a long period of biomorphism before he's making what we think of as being the kind of quintessential Rothkos. De Kooning never really settles on a singular style and, of course, has some rather remarkable inventive periods towards the end of his career. And art historians, critics have tended to be not just more forgiving of those instances of male artists where there's been a degree of variety, but actually celebratory of that. 
And I think with women artists, they've expected a degree of them being infallible. The idea that, okay, they might shift a bit, but everything that they made needed to be equally brilliant. And of course, that doesn't reflect a, a true or very rich artistic career. You know, what tend to be the best artists are the artists who have the courage to keep on trying and persevering in different directions and falling over and getting back up and doing something new. And I think, as Gail says, you know, in many ways, Krasner was quite proto-contemporary in her style of work because she wasn't fearful about trying out these different avenues. And that's what's been so rewarding about staging this exhibition now is that a 21st century audience and a series of 21st century critics come to it with a very different critical language. That is fascinating. Totally fascinating. The critics of Krasner's generation came to a woman artist work with an extraordinary amount of bias. And you just don't have the same preconceptions today. So for a man inventive, for a woman inconsistent, <laughs> is the old view. And now, as you say, it's changed greatly. And I wanted to talk to you about actually curating the show. How did you think about shaping it? It's, it's very particularly organised with the upper galleries, the smaller upper galleries, tracing a very particular trajectory, and then downstairs, the later work, is a sort of wonderful explosion of, of the night journey paintings. The Balkans are very um, challenging space in certain respects, and one of the things I've learned about it is to work with it rather than against it. You know, it's made of concrete, so you've got to go in the same direction. <laughs> And one of the things that's quite interesting about it as a space is that the upstairs galleries have about half the ceiling height of the downstairs galleries. So if you are doing a single artist, if you're doing a monographic show, you've got to think about how an artist can operate across those two very different scales of space. So one of the first things that really excited me just spatially about thinking about Krasner's work in relation to um, the Barbican spaces was, well, this is wonderful because we can tell the story of before and after the barn. So upstairs can be about her life in makeshift studio spaces, whether that's on Ninth Street, whether it's upstairs bedroom in Springs, Long Island, turning that into a studio. Later on in 53, they convert a kind of outbuilding on the farm into a kind of small studio space but these are all quite compromised working conditions and after Pollock's death in 56 we don't know exactly when but at some point in 57 she takes this incredibly bold move in deciding that she's going to turn that space into her own studio his studio his, his barn. studio yeah. his barn which of course is not just about the fact that that's an incredibly emotionally loaded space in terms of being where her husband and the person who she loved most was living and working. It's also a space that's been mythologized by the media. So if we think of Hans and Muth's photographs, if we think of the coverage in Life magazine, all of these moments have really welded Pollock to this particular environment. So to make it now her own was quite a brave statement. It was also enormous as and well. And it was enormous. And it meant that um, suddenly she could tack these lengths of unstretched canvas to the wall and she could make works like The Seasons and the Whitney's collection. She could begin work on her, what we call her night journey paintings or her umber series paintings and then later on the primary series paintings. So that was the core aspect of how I originally thought about the layout of the show. 
And then we have eight very contained rooms upstairs. And that invites you to think of quite um, a narrative way of presenting that story. What are eight chapters? And again, that plays very well to Krasner as somebody who worked in bodies of work. So it works very well for her, I think. An important part of her work, which we've touched on earlier, was her view of nature. And you've mentioned that growing up in Brooklyn was actually a lot more rural than it would now seem. But all the way through, even when she's working in rooms or in, in a city environment, natural forms in nature seem to be absolutely crucial to her. When she and Pollock moved to Springs on Long Island and they, they got married at that time in 45, she started a garden that was came absolutely naturally to her. And um, she always had houseplants in the house, both in the city and in the country. And Lee would have said she changed her view of nature through her relationship with Pollock. For example, when Hoffman visited their shared studio and he said, you know, if you don't work from nature to Pollock, you're going to repeat yourself. Pollock's response was, I am nature. And I think Lee imbibed that too, because before nature had been out there and she's depicting it, and then she changes and she paints nature as it makes her feel. She paints her emotional relationship to nature. We've talked a bit about the studio spaces, but I do think it is really interesting the way in which the environments where she works did have an impact on how she worked. And you've reproduced that in, in the exhibition brilliantly with the smaller spaces upstairs and then, then the larger barn moment downstairs and, and, and off she goes then in larger, more generous spaces. But one could also use it slightly symbolically as well that she sort of shunted around where Pollock needed the space, she would then take the smaller room. You mentioned, Ella, that, that Pollock used her room to make some quite large canvases. One wonders where she went when Pollock wanted to use her room, probably because it was the only heated one in winter or whatever. And this brings us on to the sort of way in which she did very much accommodate Pollock and his modus operandi. I think you're right, definitely. And as you say, when he takes over her studio space, it is because it's too cold and they can't heat the barn. And we know where she goes because she goes into the living room. And because she can't paint in the living room, she makes one of the two mosaic tables, which are exquisite work. So as Gail was pointing out, she has that that particular kind of emigre mentality where there's a combination of frugality and also this sort of magpie capacity to sort of find gems around you wherever you are and turn it into something really interesting. So I think she's she's not suffering in, in these circumstances. And I think sometimes there's been people sort of wanting to overly read in their own story into things. I certainly think that's only accentuated since Ed Harris's biopic Pollock. So to give an example, before she makes the little image paintings, which she begins in 1946, she has a period of about three years where she's painting what she calls her grey slabs and it's a very frustrating period she's painting and painting and painting and there's this dense accumulation and nothing will come through and by that we guess she she means form and she means colour and this is often said to be about Pollock and in some ways it was because meeting Pollock had knocked her sideways as much as anything as as Gail describes because he'd given her this new license that if I am nature then what does that mean for an easel painter? She had been there studiously, morning and afternoon and night in the Hans Hoffman School of Fine Art, looking at either a nude model or a still life setup, 
And in varying degrees of abstraction, she's still relating to that outside image. And suddenly this door has been flung open and she's been told, all of that is beside the point. You can actually paint what's inside. So yes, it's partly about Pollock, but we can also look around a bit more and see there's the death of her father. And she writes to friends of hers. She writes to Mercedes Carlos at the time saying, you know, it, it's torn me to shreds. She had no idea what the grief of the loss of a parent would do to her. There's also, as Gail writes brilliantly in the book, there's also the Second World War and what that meant for a Jewish emigre artist to be learning about the full horrors of the Holocaust, which of course hit America very late. They're only really getting the full picture of that story much later on than people would have been conscious of that in Europe. And what that meant for her to have been so dislocated from that background. So there's, there are literal layers of paint in the Grace Labs, but there are also emotional and psychological layers. And I think we have to be very careful about avoiding the temptation of reading the relationship between Krasner and Pollock in too straightforward a way. Taking absolutely the complexity of the situation, the fact that there are many other factors influencing Lee apart from her relationship with Pollock, nonetheless, she did to a great extent feel rather pigeonholed as his wife and... I think slightly irked that she was passed over on several occasions. I'm, I'm thinking about the best Oh, no, Parsons. she was never slightly irked. She was truly irked. <laughs> <laughs> Talk a little about the scales. Yeah. I mean, how did she feel about this? Was, was it an overshadowing or was it something that was, she was more of a stimulation? She was never, ever jealous of Pollock or the attention he got. She was thrilled with that. She was working all the time to keep Pollock on the wagon and producing and showing... Um, she was never competitive in that sense. She absolutely had complete faith in Pollock's talent, as she was confident in her own talent. But I think she had a very realistic picture of how women were treated at that time and what opportunities they had. And, you know, she dealt with Peggy Guggenheim, uh, Pollock's dealer, and then Peggy went to Europe after the war, and she dealt with Betty Parsons, Pollock's dealer, and even the women... But not very sisterly, were they? Well, you can't really blame them because the buyers were men that wanted to buy art by men. I mean, she did say, didn't she, Eleanor, that, that in a way it was a blessing that she didn't have the, the acclaim that, that perhaps, you know, she might have done she hadn't been the widow of Jackson Pollock because she could then change her style. She could then be free to experiment as much as she liked. Is that brave speak or is that genuinely felt, do you think? I think she had a very complicated career. I mean, we have to remember that unlike many of the abstract expressionists who did not tend to live full lives, she we're looking at a career from 1928 through to 1976 in the show. So we're looking at best part 50 years worth of work. And of course, she continued making work right up until her death in 1984. So over the course of that 50 year period, she's dealing with what it was like to be in the art world during the depression, when actually there's relatively little sexism because they're all broke and no one's got any shows and, and nobody's got a hope of success. So the depression gives her one kind of context. Then she's got the post-war context. Then she's got the 50s. Once artists start to be able to develop a little bit of a claim and it starts to become quite competitive, she's moved out to Long Island. She also doesn't want to be anywhere near the club. She doesn't want to be in the Cedar Tavern. She doesn't want to be in those places because, of course, there's Gail was saying her primary focus is keeping Pollock on the wagon and that means keeping him out of Manhattan, keeping him out of that scene. She's then got the 60s, a point at which actually she's really coming into her own. But she's showing in London, the White Chapel Show, which London, toured the UK as well. Which tours the UK. 
But at the same time, abstract expressionism is passé by the 60s. So she's blossoming at a moment where pop actually everything. pop is everything. Somebody like Greenberg has already moved into promoting post-painterly abstraction. So she's somehow often out of sync with what's happening in these various different eras. And she has to make peace with that. She has to make peace. She says, I have regards for the inner voice. So the only thing she really cares about is the spirit that is guiding her as an artist and what she feels she needs to make at any given point. And that's what gives her the robustness to be able to survive the fact that she's left out in the cold for a good part of her career. And when she does have something like the Whitechapel show in 65, she needs to hold on to that for an awful long time. The next show she then, major show she then has is Marcia Tucker's at the Whitney in 73. So that's eight years of work before she's getting another moment of recognition. Lee might have wanted to keep Jackson away from the Cedar Tavern and all the kind of rollicking male abstract expressionist circles, but nonetheless she was still pretty fed up that she was edited out of the history of abstract expressionism. When she introduced Pollock to de Kooning, for example, and many other... And to Howard Rosenberg, the critic, and to Clement Greenberg, the critic. They were her friends from the 1930s. She'd even been a roommate of Harold and Mae Rosenberg together with her boyfriend, Igor Panchov. Nonetheless, Lee gets written out of abstract expressionist history. Rosenberg turned her into the widow Pollock. And that's the only way he'll write about her. She's, he doesn't write about her as Lee Krasner, the artist. Why is that? Is that just innate sexism? That's a very complicated thing. But if you go back to Orthodox Judaism, and I'm Jewish, there are very gendered roles. The male is the Talmudic scholar, the religious scholar. The woman plays a supporting role. Roles are very specific. I think that cultural baggage rolled over into the reception of Lee Krasner, because all the major early critics of abstract expressionism, Rosenberg, Greenberg, Tom Hess, Irving Sandler, were Jewish. Well, one of the most symbolic rejections of Lee Krasner from the annals of abstract expressionism was a famous photograph taken for Life magazine and published in 1951, which shows all the abstract expressionists under the name of the Irascibles, with, I think, just one woman in the background. That woman is not Lee. No, it's Hedda Stern, who is a Romanian immigrant, but also was fairly wealthy and was a supporter of Betty Parsons' gallery. Betty made sure that she would be in the photograph. This was the photograph of the group that had protested the conservative show at the Metropolitan Museum. The painting show. Painting show, the art show that didn't have abstraction sufficiently represented. So they were the irascible abstract expressionists protesting against mm -hmm. the conservative establishment, and Lee had been a fore, forerunner. That's right, but what happened is Barnett Newman organized it. He called, Lee answered the phone, and he said, oh, hi, Lee. How are you? May I speak to Jackson? And he invited Jackson to participate in the protest. And then the protest artists became the, the ones invited to be in the photograph. And Lee felt absolutely passed over. So the complicated relationship with Jackson Pollock, the fact that history has given her this role as the Pollock widow, could you just talk a little bit about how you negotiated this relationship in the exhibition? Because it is the elephant in the room. To <laughs> well, that was a very important question to contend with from the get-go. And I was very conscious that in terms of the exhibitions that have been staged in the past, it had tended to go in quite an extreme direction to one end of the spectrum or the other. So either Pollock was completely censored from the picture, which is, of course, 
inauthentic because Krasner speaks very openly about Pollock as one of her kind of core influences or he's so present that it's impossible to get a really clear look at her or her work because there are so many references to him. So I try to have a degree of equivalence to how male artists are treated. You know, if Joseph Albers moves upstate, does it, do we say on a wall text in a museum, Joseph moved upstate with Annie Albers? Or do we just say he moved upstate? Do we need to know that she was there as well? Is it critical information? So I try to make sure that Pollock was present and that he wasn't written out of the picture plane because that would have been wrong. But at the same time, that he wasn't clouding our capacity to see her work. So what do you think Lee would have made of this exhibition at the Barbican now? Oh, I think we would be completely thrilled, not only with this exhibition and the beautiful way that Eleanor Nairn has chosen and installed it, but with the reception that it's getting, which is incredibly positive, with the beautiful catalogue. And Lee had a special affection for Britain and for London because of her earlier success here. And I think Lee thought also she got out of the stereotype that she was pigeonholed with at home. So that, that's still happening, and that's very special. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 